want to take a couple minutes and check in about that contemplation and then uh, we'll look at a couple other formulations of dependent origination and more specifically how the Buddha describes uh, the arising of what we call it the arising of various evil unskillful phenomena the taking up of sticks and knives conflicts, quarrels and disputes accusations, divisive speech and lies but any comments about this tonight and about specifically about this contemplation making sense, not making sense before we go on remembering that you know, it's... Jenny, would you turn the second to the bottom? It's flashing up a little higher. Second to the bottom on your... on the left side. Yeah, that's better. Thanks. If it isn't high enough, it does the strobe light effect. <laughs> so I was saying that uh, it's so easy to make this more complicated than it needs to be. It is subtle, and it can be complicated, especially in all of its details. But basically, it's very uh, something that's very appropriate for us to be contemplating. If in any moment of our experience, like when we're sitting, there's, there is the appearance of being stressed or suffering, then to be, for the mind to be interested in how that's arising and how that's being supported, the continuation of that stress or suffering, how that's coming to be. It makes a lot of sense that we'd want to be interested in the supporting conditions for that actual experience of stress. And when we're feeling pretty light and free, when the heart-mind is feeling pretty light and free, what are the dynamics in play supporting that freedom? that ease in the Buddha so any comments before we go on about the sit tonight was it useful going through the 12 lengths <laughs> I see somebody shaking their head this one person went this way yeah Alan I was aware of um, the um, Stages being unusual and that they're, they seem very sort of micro and very um, psychological. But yeah. In a sense, at times, you know, a certain movement in me of um, you know, awareness of a desired state or. Uh, Maybe a little louder. A little louder. Oh, a certain awareness of, you know, in my body, a certain desired state or a certain, you know, fear that there be a pain and some, or discomfort in, you know, my body and kind of a movement, you know, to want that or it's very subtle. Right. But that's exactly what we want to do. Like right now, my voice is contact for all of us, including myself. And there's a feeling associated with it. Like if you're not liking this topic, and my voice and the words about this topic are probably unpleasant. And then we're 
we crave, you know, we'd like not to be here. We'd like to be doing something else on Monday night, whatever that might be. And to the degree that we allow the mind to proliferate around that liking, we start having grasping. You know, where the mind energetically, viscerally even, the body and mind, is leaning into that thing we're liking. Like we're not only imagining being home, we're the mind is clinging to that idea as if the idea has some reality. And we lay down some tendencies in the mind to become that person who's not at Buddhist studies on Monday night. And that, that is its own birth and death. So birth and death isn't like lifetime by lifetime, but they're birth and deaths all the time as we become the person, as we create karma, you know, tendencies in the mind. And they, oh, you know, taking birth as a, having laid down that karmic formation, that tendency in the mind, there will be, it creates problems. So we can just see it like, uh, it's like an overlay on nature. It creates resistance. Now we have to, we've defined ourselves in a way, we've defined this natural process in a way, and that definition creates problems for us living inside of that that limited box Ollie did you have a thought well it's just a reflection that's what the answer is talking about the transformation light and peace and I found myself getting lighter and I said you know it just felt you know a sense of relief and lightness and I start wanting more of that yeah. I mean, here's the thing, though, about that whole part of uh, the Buddhist teachings that's about deconstruction. Uh, we don't like it because that it's a teaching. It's like giving us a different way to understand mind and body. We like understanding mind and body in a holistic way. And we like to wrap it up with a title, me, mine, mark, something like that, and not look to carefully at that and so the Buddha is like Alan suggests you know it's a very psychological deconstructed view of the mind and body the present moment uh, experience and it the, it's totally appropriate for this resistance to arise because it's challenging our view it's the whole point the, the point of dependent origination is to challenge or established view of self. It's to, you know it's there to replace the sense of self. But <coughs> our sense of self, which is an activity of mind, is well defended. You know it it doesn't like the challenge, so it will resist it. It'll, you'll get sleepy. You'll be frustrated. You'll think it's uh, it's too nudgy. You know it's like too intellectual or whatever. You know it's just really interesting because. All it's asking us to do is, in, it's just inviting a closer look, and in particular, as we take this closer look at the experience here and now, you know, to notice the uh, sort of dependent co-arising of it. Like, there are these forces beautifully interacting and making this what it is, and why wouldn't we want to understand that? Well, only if it's threatening in some way. 
I mean, we're generally curious beasts. So we would be interested in the, the sort of nature of the mind in this way, in this deconstructed way, except it's disconcerting. It's challenging. And so that, you really want to look at that and make sure that you don't let that initial disgust or resistance or however you experience it to sort of uh, decide for you whether you're going to study this or take it up or not. And this is the thing in general about the Buddhist teachings because a lot of them immediately make sense and a lot of them not just make sense but we can see how they make sense in our experience. So then the teachings that don't immediately make sense, maybe this teaching, then we want our confidence from all the other things we've read and studied and that made sense to give us a little strength to say, well, maybe even though initially this doesn't make sense or I don't believe it or it seems like, you know, he was just doing this philosophical riff and... um, to impress the philosophers of the day or something like that, that's really not pragmatic. And, you know, that's why we began the course with this interaction between the Buddha and Ananda, where Ananda says, you know, something like, dependent origination is brilliant, it's great, and uh, I think I really got it. And the Buddha scolds him, you know, it's subtle, don't say you got it, you know, it's, it's really subtle, it's really profound so that we don't uh, take it lightly, like, okay, I get it, there's this sort of dependent chain, this, you know, natural process that we are. But the point is to direct, to sort of use that teaching to, like an overlay, to illuminate, oh my God, it really is this impersonal process. And not seeing this impersonal process means that the impersonal process has the tendency to keep replicating itself over and over again. Like I mentioned, first or second week, one easy way, and we'll talk more about this tonight, is this dynamic between the five aggregates on the one hand and the experience of suffering on the other, and how the mind and body, that's what the five aggregates are, how the mind and body and suffering perpetuate each other. The mind and body has the tendency in certain conditions to have the experience of suffering. And the experience of suffering has the tendency to reestablish or to set in motion the experience of mind and body. And this is like this is a very different view. Even within the different schools of Buddhism, this is a, uh, a can be a different view than other schools, that this existence is this dynamic of suffering and the mind and body, the play of the mind and body and suffering. And if you eliminate the mind and body, you eliminate suffering. If you eliminate suffering, you eliminate the mind and body. You go, what do you mean? You eliminate suffering and you got to get rid of the mind and body? That's the, that's the sort of provocative part of this teaching. That this whole dynamic involves suffering. So... You know, just to make that point or explain that point a little bit, I'm not sure it explains it, but it it illuminates it or it brings out the color of that point that the Buddha makes. You know, the idea that somebody who has freed the mind, uprooted the tendencies toward greed, to be greedy, to be aversive, 
that upon death, that mind stream, whatever that tendency to continue in cycles of suffering, doesn't get reborn. And the Buddha says, and it's not appropriate to ask what happens to the person. Because asking that, well, if they don't get reborn, what happens to that mind, that person, that whatever, mind-body thing? And the Buddha says, well, asking that question in that way, you're basically proving you don't understand what it is now by asking, where is it gone? And he uses the image once of the fire, you know. We don't ask, where does the fire go when it goes out? Where did it go? Well, that fire existed because of a particular dynamic, a particular process had been set in motion. There was fuel, and upon that fuel, the fire burned. When there was no more fuel, the fire goes out. And so this is one way to think about this uh, this codependent arising of self, of this suffering human being, is this interaction. The suffering is dependent on the mind and body, on the five aggregates. So sometimes the Buddha described the experience of suffering as the five aggregates of clinging. So the five aggregates, again, are just mind and body. One aggregate is the body. The other four, just four aspects of the mind. Perception, feeling, mental formations, consciousness. It's half of that circle, basically, the five aggregates, the mind and body. It's described in different ways, in a lot of overlapping ways. But it's the right-hand side of that circle, as we looked at a couple weeks ago. So... We have the five aggregates of clinging. We have this dynamic. The fire burns because of the mind and body. And so, when there's no mind and body, you can't have a fire. And when there's no fire, you can't have in the mind and body because it's the fire, it's the suffering that distorts the mind in a way that it misunderstands. And that misunderstanding puts down dispositions, unfinished business, that then is a cause for consciousness and sensitivity, you know, the sensitivity of the mind and body. So in the Buddhist model of things, these seemingly endless cycles, whether you think about it within, you know, moment to moment, how many births and deaths, how many experiences we've had that arose and ceased, or you think about it in some cosmological sense of one lifetime after another. But this is propelled because these dispositions, these unfinished tendencies of mind, basically driven by greed and aversion, they, they seek out more of the same. You know, or the cause for consciousness. And, you know, however you describe it, it seems a little far-fetched, but everything is far-fetched. You know, it's like, (laughs) so whatever explanation you have for this, it's far-fetched. The one thing that we can directly experience, whether you're really old or near death or you're young, the, the process of the mind, you know, the creative process of mind, the becoming part of the mind, the liking and the not liking part of the mind, that is not in parallel with the health or lack of health of the body. 
you know, the, the force of the mind, the momentum of whatever we take this mind to be, however we experience this mind, it's a, it, it, it exists in a different trajectory than that of the body. So when the body dies, you know, clearly the mind and body have a relationship. But the, you know, the particular arc of the physical life is one thing, and it doesn't correspond to the movement of the mind. Sometimes when we're really identified with the body and the body's really weak, you know, we assume because of the identification that the mind is weak. But if we pay close attention, you know, sometimes the mind is really, you know, the mind's all over the place. And we, the body can be really weak, but the mind, <coughs> desire, for example, or fear, can be quite strong, vibrant, not without momentum at all. So what happens to that, whatever that natural thing is that I'm calling mind or the dispositions, the tendencies, the momentum of the mind, whatever that is, why do we think upon death that just ceases? Well, because we have a very strong religious belief in materialism. We don't even, it's, we're so devoted to this belief, we don't even consider it. It's like anybody who has a kind of a fundamentalist view strongly, you know, absolute fundamentalist view. We just assume everybody else is wrong and we never occurs to us that our belief is a belief because it's just the way it is. So because of a materialist view, when death arises, we just assume that whatever the mind is, it ceases. So we want, the Buddha wanted to describe a dynamic that not only explained the birth and death as moment by moment, as we have our moment to moment existence, that also explains people being born, people dying, people taking birth, people dying, and that process. And that we talked about that last week. I wanted to review that. Maybe I'll just do that now. So the past causes, remember, the ignorance and the karmic formations. So because of the suffering in the past, what's left at, time, at the time of death is ignorance as expressed by the unfinished business, the karmic dispositions. So they, sometimes it's described, you know, and again, who knows how this process works. It's obviously a real mystery, but you can imagine that at the time of death, the last moment of the physical life in the body, the mind is doing something in that moment. And that thought, you know, that last thought or that last disposition arising as an intention in the mind, it's a real thing. It has a force. It's a cause that will have an effect. And one way to think about that is the effect is it will find because it wants to become, right? It wants to have this, get rid of that, whatever that mind is like in that moment it finds a setting suitable for the quality or the kind of intention that's there in that moment. So, finds a womb that has some sort of similarity to the quality of that intention at that moment. And then one thing leads to another. So, things develop from there. 
But we see that even in our daily life, where we, we can observe how one moment of experience and the kind of consciousness, the qualities of mind that come up in that moment, we can see how it colors, affects what gets reborn in the next moment, what comes to be in the next moment. We can see how, like uh, one image that is used sometimes is how one flame, the flame of one candle, lights the next candle. It's a different flame, it's a different moment, but this moment is affected by the previous moment in this conditional chain. Any thoughts about this before we go on? Yeah, Jenny. pernicious view <laughs> is early well now <laughs> yeah 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 One way to help uh, avoid that tendency, which is very strong for all of us, to like if we can't, you know, if we can't identify with that, and we can't identify with that. Well, at least I can identify with awareness. I'll be awareness, you know. I can, at least I, I can take, have my ground there. But the the way to support a kind of a loosening, because remember these teachings are skillful means. They're teachings that are in the service of non-attachment. So, we don't want to be attached to consciousness. We want to realize the mind, whatever that is, or the heart, whatever that is, that's free of attachment. That's the whole direction of the practice. So, the way the Buddha... And so, this whole description of this chain, this kind of uh, natural process, co-arising together over and over again, is to paint a picture of this, or reality, or whatever you want to call this, that doesn't need a self. So that the mind seeing this in this way, and seeing how this description aligns with our actual experience so clearly, so exactly, through careful observation, the mind abandons, however subtle, abandons any tendency to get attached or identified with anything whatsoever including consciousness. Because any attachment whatsoever is stressful and distorts the mind. And it sets in motion, not just, it's not just stressful, but it sets in motion endless stress. 
that never really has an end except through the, this means that the Buddha is describing, which is to realize that attachment isn't necessary, that it actually doesn't fit this experience. But from our uh, limited point of view, or diluted point of view, or our, from our misperceiving point of view, it seems to make sense to be attached, to take things personally. And we never question it. So the Buddha is offering this way of viewing, this way of understanding, because simply because it does lead to the abandonment of attachment. Attachment from this point of view doesn't make sense, and then the mind will realize non-attachment. And then, you can, from that point of view, of course, if you want it, I suppose, I don't know, you could go back to attachment if you thought it was better. <laughs> no, and I, I get it. I mean, you know, I understand the thing, and that whole transcendent Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about that. Right, but it's but but it's nature that cognizes the object. So, you know, there's a moment of consciousness when there's an object that can be known and a sensitivity that's capable of knowing that object and consciousness sort of is that, that sometimes it's described as, a, as an ignition you know because of the sensitivity and the object that consciousness ignites and cognizes that sense experience but so that's not self because that's just a natural just like when there's a match and something to strike you get a flame but that flame is dependent on those two other things, or the three of them coming together. Then you get what we call a moment of consciousness, a moment of the mind knowing something. And when we observe, and this is one of the things about having deeper states of samadhi, calm and balance, is you begin to uh, intuit the episodic quality of experience. Because it's our ignorance that superimposes a sense of continuity on experience. It's like the not paying close attention. It looks like there's really no breaks in experience. But the sort of episodic, like a moment of consciousness, a moment of consciousness, we don't see it that way. But when we do, it really it changes our understanding of consciousness the attachment to awareness or to consciousness then diminishes to the degree or when we, when the mind recognizes that consciousness, that knowing quality of the mind or knowing capacity of the mind is there for an object. Because what we do superficially is we assume it's a constant. And there's even some schools of Buddhism that really reinforce that view. And I think it can be skillful but ultimately, it has to be abandoned. There's a beautiful description. Um, Ajahn Mahabhu is one of the great Thai saints of the last century. 
died a couple of years ago in his mid-90s. And he wrote a book about his awakening, you know, uh, possibly full awakening. It's, it's always controversial. You're not supposed to say if you're a fully awakened or an arahant, fully awakened person. Anyway, he, was descri- he described it in this talk, and there's a wonderful translation. We have it in our uh, library downstairs and in the reference library upstairs in the community room, this book that has this talk. And he talks about this place he had gone to in his practice after, of course, decades of really intense, devoted practice. And his chitta, he says, the mind, was so pure and so beautiful and so radiant. So the heart, you can imagine, like, the ultimate uh, steadiness, clarity, love, you know, that love that includes everything. And... uh, it took him, it was like a, uh, he described in such a wonderful way, I can't, re- I won't be able to recreate it, but how he had to see that, that chitta, that beautiful mind or beautiful consciousness, like pure consciousness, consciousness that's not distorted by greed and aversion at all, that, that there was a subtle attachment to it. And that was the remaining barrier to full awakening is the mind abandoning the taking of that beautiful mind personally, that beautiful heart personally. And so we don't want to, like in terms of the teachings, we want to be careful about idealizing consciousness or awareness, sort of making it like an acceptable version of self. Just rely on our actual experience. Because the, that level of the mind that's conceptualizing, we really want an out. You know, and we do it in all kinds of ways. Like just in terms of common ground. Sometimes you'll, you'll see people making the community that thing. So we become identified with the community. It's like God. You know, where we... But it's, it's just the concept in our mind. And it's, you know, it's a relatively beautiful concept and relatively safe to be attached to a wholesome community. Just like it's relatively safe to be attached to so many ideas of what we take God to be or what we take the divine to be. But we don't want to forget that the mind is attached to that thing. And we want to explore what is the mind free of that attachment the heart free of that attachment because it the attachment remains a quality of separation so whatever we whatever object including the object being consciousness or awareness whatever object we take personally or we take as something it creates division you know creates duality and then there are consequences to that and so this chain this sort of dynamic process, it exists in the most subtle ways and the most gross ways. So not just in gross ways. We can have this dance between mind and body, however subtle and beautiful the mind and body is, and attachment, however refined that attachment is, or subtle that attachment is. So let's just review the five aggregates in a little bit more depth. So the word aggregate just means bundle or heap. And uh, 
Chanda, the Pali word. And because the idea is to depersonalize mind and body. You know, there are just these five things. And you could divide it any number of ways. The Buddha just thought this is a skillful way to, def- to divide up what we call this, mind-body experience. So there's the form part of it, the body part of it, which includes the five physical senses. And then there's the mind. That's the other four parts of the five aggregates. And I mentioned this already. So you have consciousness, uh, vijnana, to know, to discriminate between this and that, so sometimes called awareness, to the act of knowing or discriminating or cognizing, discerning difference. We have perception, sanya. It has the, the root meaning is to gather or to assemble. So when we perceive something um, coming out of memory, the perception is something that's created or constructed based on memory. So we see, I see Jenny over there, but actually the eyes are seeing shape and color and form. But because of memory, because that shape, color and form somehow uh, relates to some memory, the dance between the actual perception, visual perception, and the memory, I perceive, oh, that's Jenny. I recognize, oh, that's Jenny. So that's an activity of mind. So there's the activity of mind of knowing, so that the eyes, they have a sensitivity, and it knows shape, form, and color. And then what does the mind do? Well, it connects the visual contact with whatever information it has in memory it creates a perception and immediately right there with the perception is a feeling doesn't matter what the perception is how insignificant or significant any perception necessarily has a feeling tone the mind likes it or doesn't like it or doesn't know whether it likes it or doesn't like it and there's nothing we can do about feeling because it's just a natural condition process same with knowing same with perception, same with feeling. And even the <clears throat> mental formations, this more complicated part of the mind that includes the disposition, it includes the activity of intending to do something and even the action when we act out that intention. So that sankara, that intention or that disposition, it's like... Uh, the mind is acting on its perception, its feeling, its contact. But all of that, without mindfulness, happens automatically. And what mindfulness does, what this mindfulness is just another aspect of mental formation, right? Mental formations can include very unskillful tendencies, but it also mental formations, these dispositions and attentions, they can include really skillful tendencies, like the tendency to be mindful, the tendency to see things as natural, impersonal processes instead of as self, right? That could be a tendency of my mind because I've studied Buddhism and I've reflected on my experience for a while now. Now I have some of those tendencies that arise when there's contact, perception, feeling, then some of the mental formations that are arising with that knowing is... Oh, this is just impersonal phenomena being known. Just mind and body being known. 
just judging being known, just irritation being known, just painful sensation being known. So that could be a disposition. That tendency, that intention to see it as an impersonal process, and then the actual activity of seeing it as an impersonal process, or um, viewing it that way, holding it that way, relating to it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you just say, um, could you using chitta in a different way than you were just using um, consciousness? Yeah, that action. Yeah, there are the three words that are somewhat related chitta, manas, and um, vijnana, consciousness. I made a copy of a footnote in. Uh, Venerable Analeo's book on the Satipatthana, and he's talking about this. Let's see if I can put my hand on it. I knew they were around. Um, So Vijnana... This is consciousness signifies the particularizing awareness through a sense faculty. Right? That's what I was describing about. There's an object and a sensitivity, and that consciousness knows that contact between the object and the sensitivity, as well as the underlying underlying stream of consciousness which sustains personal continuity to a single life and threads together successes successive lives. Mano serves as the third door of action along with body and speech and as the sixth internal sense base. Chitta signifies mind as the entire, as the center of personal experience, as a subject of thought, volition, and emotion. A detailed service, oh, and then he just talks about where you can get more information about those three aspects. So, in some ways, chitta is a, is a more general term. And so that's why, like a lot of the times, I'll use the word mind. And the mind doesn't refer to, like, a pure mind. It just refers to this. And that's kind of the general term that, what's the mind doing now? How's the mind relating now? That's chitta. And in vijnana, the consciousness is a particular aspect of that that where we observe how because of sensitivity, because of an object, the object is known. And we're really observing that like illumination or that cognizing effect of the moment's experience. And I, I'm, I'm not sure what he means by this, uh, this other aspect of vijnana that he talks about here, um, which sustains personal continuity through a single life and threads together successive lives as well as the underlying stream of consciousness. And there's different ways in Buddhism it's described this rebirthing function. You know, and from my mind, a lot of it is just speculation. The best way, I think, to understand it is how we go from one moment to the next moment now, to the degree we really understand how we get from this moment to this moment, we can understand how we go from birth, death, to birth again. Because the mind, you know, in a very real way, 
the is taking birth in a knowing. And then in order to know the next thing, that knowing, this first knowing, has to cease. And so just this intellectually, like, well, it really has to cease before this can come into being. Otherwise, how, how can we know this? So there's uh, some mysterious transformation or, uh, you know, this thread of continuity because there, the next moment is conditioned by the previous moment. It affects the next moment. But it has to cease before the next moment. So there is a transfer of information from one moment to the next moment. But there's also a real ceasing before the next moment arises. And like I mentioned earlier, this is something that can be directly experienced. And it's, it's strange when it starts to come online. I remember in walking practice during longer retreats, like just having this perception, uh, just a moment, you know, just walking, and then just a moment's perception that this moment that's now being known it's not connected to the previous moment. Even though it's seamless, it's not like it's different. But it, the experience, the actual direct experience was, this is a different reality than that previous moment. Now that's not a normal perception for us to have. Normally we don't notice that this moment is completely independent of that previous moment, or is a different reality. It's a different birth, quite literally. We don't notice that. But we can train the mind, if it's balanced enough, if it doesn't have any agenda, it starts to see this actual way that experience is. And like I mentioned after Jenny's comment, it really leads to a letting go of attachment to this more subtle aspect of mind, consciousness. And, you know, the idea is that whatever works, whatever frees the mind up from this pernicious view. <laughs> this is one example that I mentioned at the very beginning of Jenny's comment, where the, there was a person, a monk, teaching that, uh, in answering some person's question, he said that it's consciousness that takes rebirth from one life to the next. And uh, some other monks found out that this is what this monk was saying and told the Buddha and the Buddha said well please tell that monk to come see me and then the Buddha scolded him you know and called that a pernicious view he said have you ever heard me say that and so he doesn't teach that it's consciousness that continues on through the lifetime takes rebirth that doesn't mean that isn't our superficial experience that this Awareness or consciousness seems to be continuous, seems to be the same consciousness that was there yesterday, that was there a long time ago, that will be there tomorrow. But it's because we're, we've trained the mind out of habit, the mind is trained to see it or to understand it in a particular way, and then we ignore the other facts, and that and just being relatively superficial. So the whole point of the dependent origination is to um, cultivate a perception where, as we're living our life, we're seeing this as a very impersonal process. And initially, like I said, the self doesn't like it. So it's appropriate for you to notice resistance and disgust 
to this work. That actually means you're understanding it. Because the, the, the process of the mind that's taking it all personally finds this disgusting and resists it. So that doesn't mean it's wrong. That just means it's challenging. You know, it's the same thing uh, when, we, when we do some work to uncover our prejudices and just the way our mind has been conditioned to judge and to react in different ways. It's really disconcerting to see it. I noticed that in my relationship with Wynn. You know, just seeing the different uh, patterns of stinginess and negativity. And I just notice, even with all my training, I notice I don't want to see them. It's like, uh, and, and like all the convincing thoughts I have, like why I don't need to see it, or, but, but the, the fact is we really need to see it because it's only in seeing it that the mind lets go. We can't let go without seeing what we're not seeing. It's seeing what we're not seeing that causes the change. I think this is true for all levels, not just this very subtle level of uprooting the tendency to take things personally, to live in a dualistic way. But even in very, you know, other very important ways, but more gross or superficial ways of like how we get along with each other and how we can learn to tolerate and even love each other. Yeah, so, Mark, I guess what I did was understand a previous part of your talk when you said that the, the last thought then gets transferred into the womb for the next birth. And if that's not consciousness, what is it again? Is it ignorance? What is that? Well, it's something. And this is what I was saying. It's the same with moment to moment. There is somehow, moment to moment, there's got to be some way that this moment conditions the next moment. So there is some kind of continuity. Right? There's some exchange of information or co- continuation of information. This is, yeah. Seems to be true. I mean, it's certainly true moment to moment now for us, right? It's not like... Like I mentioned how when the attention is more balanced, you can begin to discern the discontinuity. But even with that experience, my mind could also see very clearly the continuity. You know, it wasn't like, it felt like it it had the uh, sense that it was a different reality, but it was a very similar reality to the previous one, but it wasn't the same. That That was the direct perception, that it wasn't the same reality. It was a different reality, like a different universe, but incredibly similar to the previous universe, but yet a different universe. So, so clearly this is conditioning that, and it's the same, how, you know, however we describe it, it's going to be speculative. Now, perhaps there's a way to refine attention or concentration to such a degree that we can directly know that, how that exchange happens. But I'm not sure we need to see that to, under, to understand that it's impersonal. And that's the point here. You know, the Buddha said there are many things, because of his supposed abilities to uh, concentrate and to have that powerful clarity of mind, 
he came to understand a lot of things. And he said, like the leaves in a forest, that's how much I know. But I only teach a few things because that's all that's relevant. So, because all we have to, all this mind has to understand is it's not personal. Because when the mind really gets that deeply, 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 then the mind lets go of constructing the sense of separation. Right, but the question that I had was, what is it that if it's not consciousness that goes from one from one moment to the next? What exists through time? What is the connecting uh, phenomenon that exists through time so that we have a sense of yeah. I'll just give you some similes that some of my teachers have given me. You know, Andy Olemsky has one. He's like, you fax something to somebody, right? There's a continuity. So you've got a piece of paper. You put it on this machine. It sends a signal. It gets reproduced somewhere else. They're similar, but they're not the same. One's conditioned the next. Or another simile is that candle to candle. So you have a flame. That's Lynn in this moment. And then you light the next, and that candle, the next candle lights the third, and the third lights the fourth. And then 100,000 candles later, you've still got a flame, right? Now, is that the same flame, or is it a different flame? Well, it's kind of the same, and it's kind of different. You know, it's part of a chain, a causal chain, but it's not really right to say they're exactly the same flame, but it's not really right to say that they're different either. Or that one of the images the Buddha used is like a grass fire. You know, and you have a, the burning, burning, even like if there's a little stream, you know, the fire can leap that. So 20 miles later, is that the same fire? All right, I get that. I guess that you're not understanding my question. Yeah, maybe not. Which is the thing that, uh, was it the heresies of the man or whoever committed? Pernicious view. About the pernicious view. <laughs> It's not consciousness, all right? It's not, is that what you said? I think mm-hmm. it's not consciousness. That is a pernicious view. If it's not consciousness, if what continues through time is not consciousness, what are you calling it? I don't even know. Well, call it ignorance. What? Or ignorance or delusion. Okay. That's yeah. what I was looking for. Yeah. So, ignorance. Yeah, and that's at the top of the chain, right? I After death, then comes ignorance. Because, so, it's, it's the, like I said, when we're misunderstanding, the, the thing we have to understand is that misunderstanding is a karmic force. It has effects. There's no way to misunderstand our experience without setting something in motion. It's like in a frictionless universe, which in some ways, you know, physicists would describe this as a frictionless universe. Ignorance, misunderstanding, is sort of doing this. And then there's going to be a doing that because there was a doing this. So ignorance is a a forceful movement that has an equal and opposite consequence. And then you get that sort of pendulum thing. That's the cycles of samsara where things are swinging back and forth. So the question is how to cease this cycles of suffering. And it's the cessation of ignorance. It's the teasing out ignorance, teasing ignorance rather, out of the process. And that's really our work. That's why we cultivate wise attention, is we're learning to tease out misperception. When misperception is teased out, then the system no longer does an ignorant thing, which is 
in Buddhist terms, an ignorant thing is the misunderstanding, taking something to be self that isn't self. Have you kind of intrigued with this idea of, you know, kind of identification and being kind of what happens as I shift that around? You're kind of presenting this notion of mind and body and suffering or understanding identification may be a better way of saying it so like instead of the identification process being personal it's now seen as five aggregates or mind and body or nature there's still identification there's still judgment there's still reactivity but now it's understood in an impersonal way instead of taking it personal and it breaks the cycle so then I kind of notice in myself there's this you know, this part of this sense of sort of saying that's not important, and then this part that sort of resents that. You know, that's that's me. You know, this body. You know, all these things that. But can you step outside, like right now, at that feeling, can you step outside and say, well, that's just something being known. That whole little dynamic of, hey, that's me. Yeah. It's just something being known. So that's the idea, it's just to keep practicing with whatever resistance, whatever doubt comes up. You're not trying to make it anything that it isn't. It's just that being known. So it's this sort of profound reduction to the facts. Almost a, a little bit like, you know, I might perceive, you know, when you talk about pain and your knee, well, it's not my knee, but this isn't my knee either. <laughs> yeah. It's just a knee, like any other knee. Yeah. You're yeah. having pain, things going on, blah, 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 blah. It's not... Yeah, but my knee hurts me more than your knee. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's then, like, kind of amplified by identifying. And, and important. instead of arguing with someone like Lynn and saying, no, no, it isn't your knee, the, the better way to say that is, is it skillful for you to personalize the pain? Because that's very convincing. To tell somebody it's not your knee you just have arguments forever. <laughs> but to ask somebody, practice. See if taking it personally helps. See if relating to it in an impersonal way helps. And then it's really pragmatic in that way. So remember, these teachings, the Buddha wasn't trying to teach the absolute truth. This is the way it is. Put it on a rock and don't forget it. He was saying, if you practice relating in this way, you will realize a freedom of heart that is profound and surprising, and it will make you a better person. Check it out. <laughs> That's what he said. So, so I have a um, experience in this kind of thing. Last night, <coughs> early in the night, I woke up really suddenly and I couldn't I couldn't breathe at all. And so I was, I thought I was, was like gasping, thought I was dying. Um, and I hope, so there's this, I'm trying very hard to breathe, and part of the thing, you know, just relax, it'll be okay. So sort of just experiencing some compassion. And there was a very, and then I was able suddenly to breathe. And so there was a very distinct between that moment when I was trying to that moment when I was able to breathe. Very clear. Um, and I was just like, oh, he was, again, there was some of that, kind of, you made it, you were fine, and I was going to go back to sleep, and all of a sudden, my body must have been adrenaline or something. It was like, you could have died. And I started spinning that out. 
And I, and all day now, I've been watching myself going between two places. One is like, oh, are you going to sleep tonight? Because you're going to sleep And playing that whole fear thing out. And then the other one, you know, it's fine. Just, you know, just relax. And so it's a very clear, for me, a very clear demonstration. Yeah. And, and so it started to do this gap. And I can see that the ignorance is when I start having fear and clinging And I would say very, there was never any experience that it would be okay to die, I have to say. That was never, that there's this compassion for myself and sense that this would be okay, but that things would work out. But I don't think I was ever at the point where like, oh, I die at Right, that you can step back from even it not being okay and see that that experience, death would not be okay, is just that. It's just that emotional feeling, just that content in the mind, it's just that thought. So you don't have to, because that's such a strongly conditioned thought to have, that death is not okay. We shouldn't expect that thought not to arise. The question is, when it arises... What's the mind going to take it to be? Is it going to take it to be self? Or is it going to take it to be a thought that's just being known? So don't worry, because it's very easy to judge ourselves when strong, uh, when kind of quote-unquote attached thoughts that look like attachment arise as that we fail. But there's no failing in this practice. It's only the next moment to be mindful of, you know, oh, now this is being known. So we're always in the game. It's like that beautiful image, and we can end here, that I think, I don't know if Sharon Felsberg thought it up, but it was in one of her writings, I believe, of the tightropes. You probably have heard me say this, Louise, but she says, you know, you're on a tightrope, this is a description for life, and uh, if you get greedy, you lose your balance and you fall off, right? If you get aversive, you lose your balance and you fall off. If you get deluded or distracted, you lose your balance and fall off. But you always land on the tightrope. You can't but land on a tightrope. You always land on another tightrope. And you have another moment to either be in balance or to be greedy or aversive or deluded, in which case you fall off and land on another tightrope. Sort of bring some space into this work. Wynn's just saying, uh, reminding us about a story. And again, many of you have heard this story. I'm not sure exactly how you think it relates here, but... <laughs> no, I'm not thinking it does it, but I just haven't put it together. But he describes, like, being thrown out of an airplane and freaking out. Maybe this relates to waking up in the middle of the night, not being able to breathe. And, uh, but discovering that there's no ground to hit. And then just that change of mind, when you realize that the terror of falling out of an airplane, you know, is just that. We don't have to construct the notion of ground to hit, because we don't really know. And we don't have to sort of project meaning on anything. We don't, like we're frightened of death, but we don't know. The only thing we know about death is what we've told ourselves. You know, it's like we keep telling ourselves there's a boogeyman in the closet, and then, you know, we're going to freak out, like children do. You know, we tell ourselves that death is bad, like we do have culturally forever almost. 
you know, then it becomes something that's really terrifying. But we should leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds, like go the words. Comfortable with the mystery, the not knowing. Instead of our allegiance being to what we know, we can have our allegiance be this capacity to be present, to see things as they are. May this practice lead to real peace and freedom from suffering in our hearts and in the world. And thanks everyone for coming tonight. So remember, we have seven weeks. Tonight's week five. Two more weeks for the class. Next week, we'll have small groups. Um, Chaz Takafwa speaking on Friday night. Wonderful teacher from IMS, 7 to 9. Judith Regeer will be here the last Thursday in February. She's the teacher at Clouds and Water. Wonderful teacher in town or in the metro and then Santi Caro, wonderful teacher, will be up the first, or I guess it's the second weekend in March, something like the 9th, 10th, or 8th, 9th, and 10th. 8th, 9th, and 10th. Kyoko is teaching a class on 9? March. March, okay, so it's a ways away. <laughs> and lots of other programs. Any other announcements for the community people have? Take care, everyone. See you next Monday, maybe. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.